Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Edward Yauk. And um, that's the first thing we had to get through is the fact that it is a German name that's spelled J-A-U-C-H. And so we asked and it is pronounced Yauk. And um, wanted to bring him on because if you've listened to the podcast over the last few weeks, you've heard us talking about uh, malpractice story time. And we actually mentioned three, uh, he mentioned three things that were kind of can't miss. Um, and being the Fournier's or neck fash, um, the other being a spinal epidural abscess, and the other and final was the posterior circulation strokes. And so that's exactly what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to run into one of the areas of emergency medicine, the stroke presentation that tends is one of the more likely to be missed. Um, kind of can be confusing with a lot of things, especially this time of year for us in my area of the world where a lot of people have uh, dizziness and, and symptoms of that nature regarding uh, seasonal allergies and the such. And so I wanted to uh, touch on this and, and get the low case lowdown and maybe some tips to help us in the emergency department to uh, protect and uh, give us some uh, keys that may tip us off and take that next step. So Dr. Yauk, thanks for joining us here on the front line. First and foremost, uh, let's, let's hear a little bit about you and uh, give us a little background. Sure, Ryan. So I've been the emergency medicine physician now for about 30 years. I started off uh, as an engineer, then went to medical school and residency at the University of Cincinnati, where I was exposed to stroke and the world of stroke back in the early 90s and never really left. So stayed there for 20 years and then served as the division director and chair of emergency medicine at Medical University of South Carolina for 10 years and then uh, came up here to Asheville, North Carolina, where I enjoy the beautiful mountains and serve as chief of system research but uh, continue to be a one-trick pony. I, I live for stroke and that's uh, what I do. And I serve in various roles with the Joint Commission related to stroke or the American Heart or the NIH. So it's, it's still my, my love and passion. Well, you're a man after my own heart. Me, my wife and I are one of our favorite places to ever visit is, is uh, Charleston, South Carolina. We both rotated there. Of course, I live now an hour south of Cincinnati and I grew up an hour west of Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, in the Tri-Cities there in Asheville. So if, if you've never been there, uh, folks, it's a fa fantastic place to go for uh, cool places uh, such as Biltmore uh, and craft breweries and a pretty good music scene. So um, that's uh, like the background, but now we're going to talk about serious business. We're going to talk about the posterior circulation stroke. So give us just a little bit of background on the uh, patho pathology, physiology, and statistics. Yeah, right. So, right, you know, the challenge with posterior circulation strokes is I think we often miss them, so they don't often get counted. But if we look at from an epidemiological standpoint, about 10, maybe 15, 20 percent, depending upon the population of all ischemic strokes that we see will be posterior circulation strokes. So these are supplied by your vertebral arteries that go up to the basilar and form the posterior circulation. And because they can present in such a myriad of ways, they're often um, either missed or confused for other more peripheral findings. So it's hard to really get a true number of how often they occur. And they, they often occur very atypically in that they don't have the same neurological symptoms that your anterior circulation strokes will present with. So they don't, you know, people don't read the textbook about a Horner syndrome. They come in with these various vague complaints like, you know, I'm dizzy, I'm numb, this and that, and it's so so it's it's hard sometimes to even think that this could be a posterior circulation stroke. They can either be extremely mild, where the symptoms are so subtle that you can almost not detect them, 
um, or they can be so severe that the patients appear to be in a coma, in a, you know, like in a basilar occlusion where the patient appears to be comatose, they may be comatose, uh, but they could also be locked in. And so this is where doing an exam with the thought that perhaps there's something going on in the brainstem or the posterior circulation distribution um, should trigger additional parts of the neurologic exam that may not be normally performed. Um, and I'll just get on my soapbox for a minute, which I'm, I'm known to do. But, you know, we, those in the stroke community sometimes will say, well, I did an NIH stroke scale and it was zero. And you're like, hey, that's great. Uh, what else did you do? And so when, to your point, when you read medical legal charts and where people look at it with that, through that prism, you know, just saying cranial nerves intact and saying non-focal is often not enough to really be able to elicit some of the subtle findings that are found in posterior circulation stroke. So A, it's out there, maybe 10, 15% of the strokes that we see, they present with all degrees of severity from a clinical symptomatology standpoint. Um, and fortunately, the treatments like we have for anterior circulation strokes are very appropriate for posterior. So again, it's an occluded vessel. We can open them up now with either pharmacological agents or we can take them to the cath lab for larger vessels. So the therapies um, are often the same and many would argue that perhaps with the brainstem being more resilient to ischemia, we have even larger windows. The challenges with posterior circulation strokes is that we've never studied them, right? We've not done trials that have specifically, we've done some, but the majority of trials that we're all familiar with are really those trials that have looked at an anterior circulation strokes. And so it's hard to extrapolate that experience and apply it to posterior circulation events because they've not been studied in the same degree that we did for the more common forms of stroke. Let's talk about some of those exams because, of course, the NIH is, is really looking for, it narrows down a lot of those anterior circulations, looking for the actual motor and sensory deficits, some of the speech deficits. You know, the, the bigger things that we typically characterize as stroke symptoms and, and what most of the public will recognize as stroke symptoms too. Uh, but with this, you know, the, of course, the, the most common that I think of uh, is, is the uh, dizziness type symptoms. Uh, but uh, let's get into some of that exam, the key exam parts that you want to add to bring into this evaluation. They're going to say, hey, uh, this is this, we need to go further and do these studies to look for a posterior circulation stroke. And all I can think about is the whole discussions in neuroanatomy about intact circles of Willis and all that stuff as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. So the NIH stroke scale, just as a matter of reference, is a tool that quantifies neurologic deficits. It's not a disability score. It's not meant to be all-inclusive. It was created for the purposes of doing research so that we could quantify and have good inter-rater reliability when we say somebody's having a mild, moderate, severe stroke. So it was never created to replace the neurologic exam. But oftentimes, I think we feel good that somebody did an NIH stroke scale. It was zero. Good. My hands are done. There's not a neuro problem going on. The, the challenge with the NIH stroke scale in general is that it does not do uh, an adequate job for the subtle findings that are present, present in the posterior circulation as it relates to the cranial nerves. So you can have a very study, subtle ocular finding that maybe the patient's not aware of or doesn't communicate that they develop diplopia with leftward gaze, and yet that may be the only finding that there's something going on in the brainstem. So when we look at the NIH stroke scale, recognizing that it does not do a good job with the cranial nerves, then we need then to do a really good cranial nerve exam. And this is where you really need to check for visual fields um, and really look for quadrant nopia, something very subtle like that, that again, may not be picked up on patients. You need to look for 
uh, extraocular movement. You know, we'll get to the Hintz exam and some of these other exams that look for nystagmus, but unless you specifically look uh, and test the extraocular movements, then, you know, you, you may not pick up on these very, very subtle um, ocular motor findings with this. When it gets to patients, and that's especially true for patients who may be comatose, where that may be their only form of motor function is upward gaze with a basilar occlusion of the pons. So the cranial nerves in general are an incredibly important part of the neurologic exam beyond the typical NIH, to your point, motor sensory language, the more higher cognitive functions, right? In this case, we're testing more uh, of, of the brainstem function. The last one that you and I, at least when I educate my residents, it never looks good that somebody uh, who can normally walk gets discharged in a wheelchair. And so we need to really do a good job of looking at a person's gait. And so, you know, get them up and walk. If they can't walk for orthopedic reasons or other reasons, look for postural stability, just have them stand. And if they can't do that uh, because they have, you know, underlying medical problems, have them sit in the bed, look for truncal ataxia. And again, that may be the only finding that would suggest that this person's having a brainstem stroke. So when it gets to your question, what should we do? I think we have the tools, we've been trained on the good cranial nerve exam. We just need to deploy them uh, in addition to the NIH stroke scale. So let's let's do that. Let's let's jump right into it. So we got this patient that comes in, kind of give us a give us a scenario, for instance, that this kind of trigger us, and then let's walk through how do we how do we manage, how do we progress with these patients? Yeah, so I think you know you just start through your detailed cranial nerves. You're not going to really test for olfaction per se, um, even though we always say you know, well we say two through twelve intact, so we don't we never test for olfaction. But um, you know you start with you start with visual fields, and again, really doing a good assessment if they have any form of quadrant anopia or something even and larger than that. But usually, if they have a larger field cut, they'll tell you that they can't see to the left or they're running into things off to one side or the other. But really, checking both eyes for visual fields will be very important for that. And then ocular motor, making sure that they have full range of motion of their eyes, um, that you test all three ocular motor nerves, three, four, and six. Um, and as you do that, also look for the presence of any form of nystagmus, whether it be horizontal, rotational, upwards, just looking for concordant eye movement the eyes should be yoked. They should move concur you know, concurrently, and they should be tracking. And if they don't, then it suggests that there's a problem in the brainstem. And then you start moving down to things that we test with the NIH stroke scale, right? So we look for facial palsies. We look to see if, they, if your face, you smile, you can close your eyes and things of that nature. Um, when we start talking about the, the eighth cranial nerve, you know, we start getting into things like the Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver and we start getting into some of those testing tests uh, and exam um, when patients come in complaining of dizziness. Um, and so we would perform an exam that would probably include that. And then as we get down, you can look to see if their tongue moves symmetrically, if, if their palate moves symmetrically and things of that nature. But usually they're gonna come in coughing or having some form of dysarthria with that. So that'll get picked up on the NIH stroke scale. But then we look for ataxia, you know, so then at this point, we're looking for specific cerebellar findings. And again, just regular gait is an incredible gaze into the soul of the posterior circulation. Can they walk? Could they walk before and can they walk now? And can they walk in a straight line? And again, if they have underlying medical problems that prevent them from walking, can they just stand? 
And again, if they can't do that, do they have, and that's baseline for them, that they can't stand for whatever reason, sitting them in bed and looking for truncal ataxia, looking for the ability to maintain posture is really important. And if they can't, that may suggest that they're having a, a stroke of their vermis, you know, something that, that you wouldn't get with finger to nose or heel to shin. You know, again, we do test the cerebellum and the anti-stroke scale with finger to nose and heel to shin, but we really don't test the central aspects of the cerebellum that you would get with more, more truncal. Uh, an examination for that. So those are, those are you know, again, we really need to do finger to nose, we really need to do heel to shin. Heel to shin is sometimes hard to, to get in some patients, um, but you know, we can, we can look for other cerebellar findings through, through gait and posture. So now we've, we've got these, we've got our concern there, um, and we wanna kind of crank it up a notch. Let's talk about that evaluation because this is one that's a little bit easier to miss on even some of the imaging studies. So let's talk about the, the progression through uh, our evaluations and how we're going to confirm that, that we've got a posterior circulation stroke and maybe even roll into some of those differences between, if you, well, we'll start with that. Let's, do, let's look at the imaging evaluation. Right. So if you're thinking, well, then that gets into a challenge. But if you're thinking, and I'll back up, when you have a neurologic exam that matches any of those strange cranial nerve findings or something from the HINTS exam, and that's accompanied by a peripheral deficit, you know, a slight motor palsy, maybe a pronator drift, that should be, you should be highly suspicious that this is a posterior circulation stroke. So a peripheral deficit, even if it's mild, coupled with a cranial nerve deficit, should really trigger your suspicions that something bad is going on. So now that you've been alerted to the potential that this is a posterior circulation ischemic event, then we would, A, if you have a stroke team, activate the stroke team. You know, this is why they're there. Now, not everybody has that resource. If you have telemedicine, activate it. Um, again, I'll give you a medical legal pearl in, in that, you know, oftentimes if you have a protocol in place that's used in your hospital facility for suspected stroke, it's not written for anterior circulation only. It's, suspect, it's written for all strokes. So by all means, if you have a concern, use and leverage the same resources you have, if you're so fortunate, that you would for the other strokes that you would call, even if they had a mild symptom. So, so first and foremost, know what, you, what resources you have and when you're expected to use them. Most commonly, these patients will be whisked off for a CT, you know, just a non-contrast to make sure that there's no mass, there's no hemorrhage, there's nothing gross like that. But as we know, due to the bone windows, that the CT scan is not sensitive to the posterior fossa, nor is it sensitive early on to the very small regions of the brainstem that may be involved. It, it takes a while for that hypodensity to be, to be identified. So really the, the study of choice, you know, if you, and you ask a neurologist, it's like, well, why didn't you get an MRI? And I said, well, you know, why isn't there one at my hospital? Um, so, you know, you, again, you have to kind of use what you have available. So I think, you know, most of these patients, if there's a suspicion and you kind of activate your protocol for strokes, will undergo a non-contrast CT scan and perhaps a CT angiogram, which is increasingly common now to look for large vessel occlusions. And that will be helpful for patients who come in devastated. Patients who come in comatose, you think it may be metabolic, it may be toxicologic, but you're not quite sure. Because again, the locked-in state that, are, that eventually will occur for the pontine basal occlusions will be comatose to begin with, and then eventually they kind of wake up and then they're only left with upward gaze movement or some portion of that. So a CT angiogram 
of the head and neck will will show you if there's a large vessel occlusion producing such large devastating non-focal symptoms but you know beyond that ct perfusion which again is increasingly common in in anterior circulation stroke evaluations for later windows reperfusion is not as good in the posterior fossa for all the reasons that cts are not as good and they're typically they don't do whole brain coverage. And so unless you tell your radiologist and your radiology tech that you're thinking posterior fossa, they may not include many slices in that region to be able to have a CT perfusion be useful to you. So this is one of those cases where I would say to the person performing the evaluation, this is what I'm looking for. Can you make sure you focus in the posterior aspects of the brain? Because that's where I think the money is. If you have access to an MRI, then an MRI is clearly the way to go because you can find DWI lesions very early on. Not always, but you know, again, that, that is the test of choice to look for very small punctate lesions when patients come in with very mild symptoms um, and you're not sure what's going on. The MRI can show that, there, that there's an occlusion. Now, if you get them hyperacute and they come in right after the onset, you know, even an MRI may be negative. And that's, that's part of the challenge, you know, is at what point do you stop your pursuit of this being a posterior circulation stroke? But, you know, in the perfect world, you know, the patients would undergo an MRI. So we're working our way through. I'm fortunate that I work at a hospital that's got the MRI that there's not much in terms of questions asked. But, I mean, that's the challenge out there, especially for uh, critical access and austere environments, you know, when to pull the trigger on, on these systems, symptoms when they come in. Uh, because if you're talking about potential stroke, flying somebody out, uh, sending them to a stroke center, you know, that, that the cost time and, and uh, procedures escalates very quickly. And so that's that's the, uh, and I think you kind of talked about it with, with getting into the exam, the, the cranial nerves, the hints, the NIH, all of those exams in terms of if, if one of those is positive, then uh, pull that trigger. Um, what's the... You know, the, the, the couple I've seen recently, younger people um, that, that have had uh, vertebral dissection, and vertebral dissection isn't as common as carotid dissection, but it seems like that's what we hear more of in terms of the stroke symptoms is those vertebral dissections. Uh, the pathology associated with the embolic, thrombotic, hemorrhagic uh, dissection, what are we looking at with the uh, posterior circulation uh, in terms of the uh, reasoning, whereas in the anterior circulation, a lot of times we're looking at it more of an uh, embolic thrombotic, if not hemorrhagic standpoint. Well, the posterior circulation, if you look at the if you look at the anatomy of the vertebral arteries, you know they go up through the lateral foramina of the cervical spine. They go through these tight bony canals that have all sorts of you know bumps and lumps and spurs and whatnot, and and they're you know it's in a very rigid canal, if you will, but that moves, and so. To your point, you know, we've seen a significant number. I remember many, you know, several of the stroke patients that I took care of, and one occurred when the person, you know, suddenly turned their head. We've always had this argument, does chiropractic manipulation cause dissections? And I won't get into that. But, you know, but it is. It, it's it, vertebral dissections um, do produce strokes. They tend to produce that small intimal tear that can either produce an in-situ clot right there and then, or they can shower something downstream into the thalamus or somewhere else where it may be more subtle. So when somebody comes in and their event was precipitated by yoga or um, coughing, you know, which is what we see in the anterior circulation, some form of, it can even be mild trauma. It can be, you know, a mild fender bender with a seatbelt, you know, for a carotid, for example, or somebody who had 
um, you know, just mild neck pain associated with the neurologic finding, then I think you need to be considering that this is dissection producing the vascular event. So, and I, and I get to your point, you know, just like all strokes, we can see this in every age demographic. And so uh, we just, we, we can't dismiss a 30 year old or a 40 year old um, who has a mild symptom an otherwise healthy individual, um, especially if they have a mild, you know, moderate neck pain that's that's associated and came on concurrently with whatever neurologic symptom uh, or finding that we we can identify. And I'm actually much more, uh, probably overly so, pull the trigger on that on those imaging studies MRI, and with concern for posterior circulation, especially in younger, just because of the the pre- presentation and the simple fact that you know looking at the data, 30 to 60 percent are missed on the first pass. And so the likelihood of catching one uh, early is much less than anterior circulation, where when somebody comes in with facial asymmetry, their arm is a little bit weaker, they can't hold their coffee cup or whatever it is, you know, that thing gets triggered from 15, 20 minutes before they get into the emergency department and they're going straight to the scanner, you know, whereas the posterior circulation stroke, you know, frontline may not pick it up, triage may not pick it up. It's one of those things that you're looking, you're like, there's just not something right about that. And, and as you mentioned, the, the exam is going to be the thing that's going to kind of take away that, you know, identify the central versus peripheral, looking at other deficits that may be there, may be present. And I'm glad you answered the question with regard to um, the mobility, because so many now with the, with the graying of our patient population, uh, many of which don't aren't up and about, you know, they're even standing may be a good day for them. Um, and so, you know, getting that evaluation that ambulatory or that standing or, or, or looking at those things is going to be quite important. So give us kind of a, a summary, overarching view. We've kind of had some uh, focused questions, but kind of give us that overarching view, any summary or any points that you think that the physicians out there uh, need to recall, need to keep in mind, especially those in those community settings that may not have an, a magnet that's just burning up waiting for a patient to slide in. Well, I think first and foremost, the NIH stroke scale is not a neurologic exam. And so go back to your days of training when you had a good neurologic exam and listen to the patient and try to really parse out what, because they will come in, unlike an anterior circulation stroke where I drop my coffee cup, they'll come in saying, I'm not right, I'm forgetful. Um, You know, they may be very vague in the way to describe their symptoms. And so instead of just accepting that, you you need to query them a bit more to get a better understanding of exactly what it is they're complaining about when it comes to double vision, or when it comes to dizziness and things of that nature. And that'll help you decide, to your point, when do you pull the trigger and call this a possible stroke? Um, and then when you do have that suspicion, especially if these patients have risk factors, just like for anterior circulation strokes, utilize whatever resources you would do as if they came in with anterior circulation strokes. You know, don't be shy. That's, that's the reason why they're there. And, and leverage those resources that you have. And then when it comes to you know, treatment considerations with these patients, you know, your NI stroke scale could be zero, but if you have profound truncal ataxia and you can't walk straight, even though you got good finger to nose and heel to shin, just because you can't maintain your posture, that's disabling, you know? So it gets back to how we manage and we consider the risk benefit ratio for treating patients um, or escalating care in patients based on the disability that they would have and the impairment in their quality of life they would have if these deficits persisted. So we still use the same type of risk benefit considerations when we try to decide, do we treat or do we escalate care um, based on what they could be left with? Talking with Dr. Edward Yalk um, and uh, 
we got our NPR feel here because actually during one of the answers, I, I actually saw a reflection of a truck going by the wind, going by in the picture behind you. Um, so on the first floor there in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. Um, how can folks get in touch with you if they have any further questions um, about posterior circulation strokes, um, anything of that nature? Yeah, so uh, it's just my name, edward.yalk at gmail.com. So that's probably the easiest way to find me. It's nice having a unique name when you can get your own Gmail address without numbers. And every other thing on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the downside. Yeah, uh, and, and the Yalk is spelled J-A-U-C-H. So if, if Hooked on Phonics works for you, that email will not work for you. So uh, make sure you spell it correctly. The Edward is uh, the traditional Edward Phonics. We'll work on that one. Uh, but uh, as for me, you can contact me at rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, pretty easy there, at Everyday Men on Twitter. And, of course, I encourage everybody to um, subscribe to the podcast if you're interested about the posterior strokes and want to uh, have a little bit more angina associated with it. Uh, listen to our uh, MedMal story time uh, where we talk about this a little bit more. Uh, three podcasts out of the four in this bundle that are actually all related to each other uh, unintentionally. So it all works out from that standpoint. Uh, but check those out, uh, share them, and uh, remember, you know, it's, it's, it's the neurologic exam. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more than NIH, and sometimes it's just a little bit more than are they alert and oriented times three or four, whichever one you like to use. And honestly, maybe with cranial nerves, maybe it's not two through 12 anymore. Maybe it is one with COVID. So uh, checking that out. And uh, that is the one we've actually tested most for the last two years. As for me, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and thank you for tuning in to ASAP Frontline. Mm-hmm.